Thank you so much for being our music teacher tonight. It's fantastic to have you with us. Oh, that's, I didn't realise I was going to be teaching music. Well, we were a bit... Actually, you know what? You might, you might be able to help us because we were, we're not very inventive and we, we couldn't think of a name for the segment. So oh. we just call it Music Teacher. But if you've got something better, oh, <laughs> feel free. All right, then. Well, I'll, I'll, we've got 45 minutes then. Maybe something will spring to mind. Okay, great. Now, let's <laughs> kick off with, with the list of songs that you love. Well, you know what it's like when you try and think of songs you love. I mean, there are so many that it's just really arbitrary, really, you know. Uh, but I just picked a few that, 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 again, just sprang to mind. So It's always tough to put musicians on the spot with this, by the way, too, because, mm. you know, you obviously have a love of music and you just, your last album, I was, I was listening to it before the interview and I, and I was thinking, there's such an eclectic mix of music in this. You know, this man clearly loves orchestration, there's there's Americana, mm. there, mm. there's a beautiful ballad about your mum. It's mm. You know, there's such a breadth <laughs> of music in one album. It's amazing. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, that's my favourite record that I've done, so I'm, I'm very happy with it. And it's always a challenge to get it to actually, you know, to try and market it in a way that where people are exposed to it but it exists at least and so I'm happy with the with the end result Mother of mine You are the light that always shines Into the world You let me see If you want to listen to it, by the way, it's called Fierce Mercy uh, and it's a fabulous album. But uh, back to our music teacher moment. Mm. Let's start with this. Okay, so why does Little Richard's Lucille make it to the list of songs that you love? Because it's just a perfect song. It's a perfect pop slash rock song. You know, it's it's the track, the rhythm track is just, it's perfect. It's so simple and yet it's nuanced, you know, and the vocal performances is kind of raucous, but it's also really nuanced as well. 
the sound of it is just, it's like it was recorded yesterday. It's, it's so immediate, you know, and whenever you hear it come on, you just kind of, it's undeniable. You just think, oh, that's a, it, it's, it's rock and roll. It reminds me of everything I, I, I love about the fantasy of rock and roll, the reality of rock and roll. When my mother and father had a music shop in Scotland, it's like, it's what I imagined America was, you know, um, because that's where it was born, you know, and you're just going to go, well, I want to go there and try and experience what um, what that is, you know, whatever it is. And you didn't re- even really understand it, but it was just this magical, exciting sound and it was a world that you wanted to be a part of. was released it was back in what 1957 or so do you have memories of, of your parents playing it I imagine if they owned a record shop they would have had an incredible music collection well they didn't it's not so much that we had a collection but we had the shop you know so yeah. um but we had the shop from 1950 from 1958 until 1967 so um we would experience all that music that was recorded and released during that time would come in the shop and the pristine, you know, seven inch or twelve inch records, and it was, it was kind of glorious. And 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 you know, the older I get, the more I realise how incredible that was. You know, just to be a, to be in a shop where surrounded by music and surrounded by pianos and guitars and drums and, uh, and the like. I don't specifically remember that song from that period, but of course I remember it from when I got a bit older. You know. Um, my brother, you know, turned me on to to soul music and and uh, and black music more than more than I was aware of. You know, he was he was four years older than me, so he said, "Listen to this," and he played me Green Onions and uh, Booker T and the MGs, and it was just like it was so mysterious and and captivating at the same time. parents in the record shop, were they allowed to play the records as they got them in or did they have to stay in sort of the pristine <laughs> plastic oh, cases? Oh no, you, you could play them if people uh, you know, because if people came in to buy them in those days uh, you would play them for them to see whether they wanted to buy it. That must have been great. I mean you must have been the most popular kid in school. <laughs> and uh, it was like having a, an incredibly huge pair of headphones on because people would go into the sound booth, mm. but it was just like you could still hear people talking, you know. But they talked loud because they were louding. They were they were talking over the music, and you would hear people in there saying, "Ah, we'll just listen to it, but we're not going to buy it." <laughs> <laughs> you are Scottish, well, by origin. I didn't know. I'm being pejorative about Scots people there. How thrifty they can be. Um, <laughs> Backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. So you would have seen, I would imagine then, that whole rush for, for people to listen to the Beatles music when you were a kid. Yeah, my father first played me the Beatles and um, it was after the shop was closed uh, for the day. 
And the, one of my favourite things to do was to listen to music with my father. And he would he would just be a DJ for half an hour or something. He would be playing songs because he was a he was a great singer and dancer, my father. And so he would he would play songs to see whether he liked them, just to sort he knew what he was selling. And he played me a Beatles track and um, said, "Have a listen to these guys." And it just kind of blew my mind. I said, "Oh, you know, can I be in the Beatles, Daddy?" He said, "No, you can't be in the Beatles, son. No." So I wanted to be in the Beatles. Which one did you want to be? Oh, I didn't want to be anybody. I wanted to be a, I wanted I wanted to be me and the Beatles. <laughs> Colin in the band. <laughs> the Fab Five. Uh, yeah. now, which may be why this track is uh, also on the list of songs that you love. Let me take you down I'm going to strawberry fields. Nothing is real. Nothing to get hung about. Strawberry feels forever. Strawberry feels forever. What a glorious sound that is. <laughs> the extra Beatle, why that one out of all the Beatles tracks? I remember when I was still in Scotland and my mother and father, we were about to go to Australia and I just heard that track. I can't remember how I heard the track. It was at school or something and I can't. I can't really quite remember, but I just remember listening to that track over and over again and thinking to myself, I'm going some I'm going to the other side of the world. And that was just the song that accompanied that feeling of not so much trepidation, but it was excitement and, and that that feeling of going to somewhere which was very, very different and and unknown. And uh, that was the that was the song that was in my head that accompanied that feeling at the time. Living is easy with eyes closed. Why did your parents decide to leave Scotland and the record shop and emigrate to Australia? Uh, because I think that my father wanted a better life for his family. Um, Scotland and Britain was, you know, reasonably economically, you know, recessed or depressed. And um, it rained all the time. It was cold. My father didn't like the weather. And plus they had that, um, at that time, they had that rather, you know, questionable policy of of immigration that the Australians had, the Australian government had. It was that, you know, post-war um, immigration policy they had that brought people from Britain and parts mm. of Europe. And uh, it was an assisted passage, so it only cost 15, 20 pounds to come. So you're and a 20 so, pound, well, not a pom, yeah, a Scotsman, yeah, 20 pound exactly. Scotsman. They charge Scots, exactly. Scottish people more. Yeah, I think it was, well, it went up from 10 to 20. Do you remember a show called The Magic Boomerang? No, I don't remember that show. The Magic Boomerang. It was a show where this kid threw this boomerang and when he threw it, time stopped still while the boomerang was in motion. I remember watching, seeing the 
the Australian bush, you know, and and what I what I remember thinking was that it was just a very, going to be a very mysterious place. I didn't quite really know what what it was going to be like, but um, it was exciting. Everything was very was 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 much bigger than than in Scotland, you know, and it was um. It was a great thing to do for them, for my family, especially when I, I was 14 and I came to Melbourne. And um, in Scotland, there was a, a fair amount of social entrenchment. Like, you know, you didn't have friends who were Catholics. I was brought up a Protestant, though I don't even you know particularly know what that means. But, you know, the, the re- religious division was quite, was, was quite apparent. And... Um, I hated all that, you know, and I would get into fights. For, and I hated, you know, getting into fights with people because you'd just get because of the colour of your blazer, you know. So I came to Melbourne and um, went to school, and all the kids that I met were either playing music or they were surfing, and they would go surfing, and they had cars. <laughs> was ridiculous you know you didn't have a car in Scotland until you're 36 years old or something you know and um, it just was a world that it, it just blew my mind you know it was like a, it was like going into a technicolor world where the, the skies were blue and the oceans were big and you could you know go down the coast and go down to the go down the great ocean road and swim in water where there was nobody there you know and it was just a a pretty glorious experience for me in many ways when I first when I first came. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't. Well, I'm not going to say it was. All of it was easy because it was a. There's a period of adjustment and so forth. Especially, I think it was more difficult for my parents to adjust than anyone else because they were well into their forties, which is a difficult thing to do when you're when you're that age to go to the other side of the world. But I think all things considered, it was a fantastic move for the for my mother and father to make. Colin Hay is here. He's your music teacher this evening and we're running through the list of songs that he loves, songs like this one. Girls' faces form the forward path from phony jealousy to memorising politics of ancient history. Now, you would have been listening to Bob Dylan by the time you were in Australia, presumably. Yeah, I was. I listened to Bob Dylan, but I wasn't, I wasn't like a, a obsessive about Bob Dylan. But I became more so as when I went to live in the United States, I think. I mean, I listened, I listened to, I, I did listen to him when I was young and got turn, turned on to him by, by a school friend when I was, when I just first arrived in Australia. And I always liked, you know, I liked him, but I became much more, much more of a fan when I, in the last, say, 20, 25 years. And why do you think there was that, that time lag? I'm not quite sure. Um, uh, I listened to him a lot more, and I think maybe geographically had something to do with it. Now, whenever, you know, I, I listen to whatever he does, but I go back and I listen to songs all the time, just 
out of curiosity and I just go, I want to listen to that song. And that, that song, for instance, for, for instance, is it's so emotional, that song. It's, 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 it's incredible. It's an incredible piece of work. Deceived me into thinking I had something to protect. find these terms quite clear no doubt somehow ah but I was so much older than I'm younger than that now and do you find it my back page is emotional because of the poetry in the in the lyric or, or because of yeah, the way it's, it's constructed it's everything the poetry, the um, the vocal performances—it's like it's and I don't know if it was or not. It sounds like it was a very initial take. It may not have been. It may have been, you know, forty takes later. Who uh, I have no idea. That must be tough. Forty takes of something to try and you know get back to the core of it. Well, <laughs> a lot of people do. I mean, the Beatles had many men. They had multiple takes of songs because sometimes I think what happens in the studio is that. Sometimes you get into the studio and it doesn't sound the way you want it to sound, so you try a different approach, and then that doesn't sound the way you want it to sound, so you try a different approach, and sometimes you end up, you know, just working on something for for weeks. And sometimes it's it's worth the effort, and sometimes it's not, and you know you can't you can't really tell and, until um, until you end up with you know what you end up with. And sometimes the sometimes the first take is best, but Usually the third one is. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that for you? That we... Yeah. Well, I went to record in Nashville a few years ago and the Nashville musicians hadn't heard any of the songs I was going to record and they said, okay, play us a song you want us to record and I, I played the song acoustically and they were all checking their phones and checking their emails and sending texts and I thought they're not even listening to what I'm playing, you know. And then at the end of the song, I, one of the, the keyboard players just said... Um, well, can you play the bridge one more time? And I played the bridge one more time. And he goes, yeah, I think we're good. So we went in the studio and the drummer just, the only thing the drummer said to me was, do you want to count it in or do you want me to count it in? I said, no, you count it in. So he counted the song in and um, we recorded the song. It was like they'd been playing the song for 10 years. To ask you about that documentary you were in a couple of years ago about yourself waiting for my real life. What was it like 
been the subject of a documentary? It's a little odd, but I think that if I can step outside myself for a minute, I think it's a you know a reasonably interesting story, and it's a story that I think a lot of people have, where you have a a brilliant moment. Um, in my case, it was my success with Men at Work, and um, after that success, it it fades a bit. You know that where you where you don't have that commercial success anymore. It's what do you do with the rest of your life, because you sometimes have that as your first marker of success. And it was a glorious marker and it was, it was, you know, it was an incredible punctuation, punctuation to my life. It was something which happens to very, very few people. And the danger is that you, you know, you live the rest of your life trying to, trying to relive that. And I think that the, the lesson there is really just, is just to kind of, to get on with what, what is really important. And in my case, it was, it was trying to be as creative as possible and, 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 and making a living from playing music and entertaining people and writing and recording and, and going out and playing music for people and not, not measuring your worth, if you like, by the, by the commercial success that you had in that moment, you know. But I think it makes for an interesting story because often what happens is that that, that part of your life is, is often much more interesting than, than the highs, you know. Mm. And I think a lot of people... A lot of people have that, you know, it's, it's, I think also, you know, we're all dealing with the fact that at some point our lives are going to end, you know, and it may be old age, it may be tomorrow, it may be, you never really know, but there is that feeling inside that you never really talk, talk about. It's a very intimate thing. And I think at some point everyone has to, you know, really come to terms with how they want to spend not only the rest of their lives, but just, you know, this particular day, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to do with this particular day? And, you know, a lot, a lot of times people don't even have those choices to make, you know, they're, they're uh, in situations which are beyond their control in many ways, you know, but if you do have the choice of, of what you're going to, how you're going to spend your life and how you're going to spend each and every day, it becomes very important as to, to, to spend your life in a, in as meaningful a way as possible, you know. How did you choose to spend yours? Well, doing what I'm doing, really. Mm. When I got dropped from major labels, I was on my own, so I didn't have a manager, I didn't have a record label, I didn't have an agent. I didn't really have any of the, the normal kind of trapping, industry trappings, if you like, you know, of a, of a recording artist. I still had songs and I had my ability to play and sing, but I had none of the, had none of the infrastructure anymore. And I was lucky because I wasn't a poor person, you know. I had I had money, so it wasn't like I was starving or anything. But I was living in a different place. I'd gone to live in the United States, and and so I thought, well, what am I going to do with my time? And so I just really st- I started going out on the road and playing live for people. And of, often there was only you know twenty, thirty, forty people in the audience, hardly anyone. Because What's that like for you? I mean, when you're used to stadiums that are packed out with with people, is that a tough thing? It is odd, yes. It is strange, and um, it's not for the faint of heart, perhaps, and not. For, uh, but it was really the only thing I, I could think of doing that made any sense. I could have stayed home, I suppose, and and, and done other things, but I, but I chose not to. And I think, uh, getting back to your original question, I think it, I think that that really says something about well, you know, my my purpose, if you if you believe in that kind of thing about having a purpose, was that. You find ways. You find your place within the universe of where you're supposed to be, and what you're supposed to do, and what gives you nourishment, what gives you a professional fulfilment, and um, that's what gave me um, uh, that. And it, almost, it was also a way to 
to connect to people and feel like you were for one of a better expression it made just it just made me feel useful Colin Hay is here. He's your music teacher. Tonight we're going through the list of songs that he loves. This is a beautiful track. All we ever wanted was just to come in from the cold. Come in, come in, come in. Come in from the cold. Come in, come in, come in. Come in from the cold. I'm not surprised at all that you've chosen a Joni Mitchell song. Yeah, she's the greatest. That's it? She's the greatest, yeah. Why? I don't know. I just think she's the greatest. She makes me... She's got everything. I feel renewed. I feel disabled. By these bonfires in my spine. See, I, I heard her singing with a symphony orchestra, one of the songs off Blue. I was listening to her singing as a much older woman, and there's so much more in her voice now. I think. I mean, she had a beautiful voice, don't get me wrong, back in the heyday. Mm. But I just really, I don't know. Do you, what, what, what do you think? It sounds like you're an uber fan. Well, she's not well at the moment. But, uh, yeah, she's, she's just a true artist in the, in the truest sense. That song, I mean, there's many, many songs, incredible records, incredible guitar tunings and an and, and openness to the way she writes, which is quite unique and very inspiring. But that song in particular was from an album, I think it was called Night Ride Home, the, the album. And uh, I, I just arrived in Los Angeles and was living there and really didn't really know very many people. And so I just played that album over and over again. I just, I loved that song in particular. It just, it, it would grab me and I would listen to that on my way home when I was driving home uh, down the canyons and um, gave me great solace and, um, and inspiration. When you see somebody that you admire so much like Joni Mitchell and she has a stroke and, and she could no longer sing again, do you feel your own mortality? Do you, do you look at something like that? Does it does it bring what we were talking about a little bit earlier in, into fine focus? Yeah, I think that, um, well, it happened when my parents died. Uh, it happens it happens in many ways. But, yeah, you just you realise that you just really got – you've got to get on with it. <laughs> Whatever it is you're doing, you know, just get on with it But you because you don't have as much time as you think you have, you know, and um, – 
you know, I, I love the way my life has turned out, you know, and, and but it's not okay now. You know, you don't arrive anywhere. You just kind of, you're just constantly in, you know, in transit, <laughs> in transit <laughs> lounges, you know. Colin yeah. Hay is here. He's your music teacher tonight. Now, we, we usually scoot through these bits because they're often painful for people. But I like that you've, you've varied the title of this. Usually we, we say, you know, give us a few songs that you prefer never to hear again. And you've tweaked this slightly to say songs that remind me of a time I'd rather forget, like this one. The sea is white And I can't swim so what does this song remind you of? Drinking. What were you drinking? I was drinking a lot. <laughs> when? Uh, the 80s. The late 70s and the 80s was my drinking career. In the heyday of Men at Work? It wasn't really to do with Men at Work so much. I mean, people can... I don't think it was. I think it was just the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm what they call an alcoholic. You know, I realised... When I first started to drink, that I probably was an alcoholic uh, because I just liked it too much and liked it way more than I should. And I had about a... It wasn't really that long, I think, really. It was probably about a 14 or 15-year drinking career, which was pretty full-on. I stopped in 91, and that that song, and amongst others, but that album in particular, which is I think was with the Chieftains, I think, was an album that I would listen to when I was, um, you know, in in a bad in bad shape, and knew that I had to do something about it, which really necessitated me leaving the country. Really, I went to live in the United States because I thought that would help, and it wasn't the only reason I went there, but it was a way that I could wipe the slate clean and and start again and start my life again, which is really what I did. So apart from moving, how did you get off the booze? I just stopped. I went to um, I went to meetings, and uh, I wanted to stop. That's the big thing. You have to want to stop. I wanted to stop. So if you don't want to stop, you won't stop. It doesn't really matter what you do. If you if you don't want it, it won't happen. So I I, would, I went to AA and I, I um, for quite a long time, but I also went to an acupuncturist that gave me gave, helped me a lot and. Uh, and then I just stopped, and um, it took me about five or six years to stop. You know, I, I first tried to stop at about around 85, 86, and it wasn't until 91. But I would stop for months because what happened was 
I, I, had a, I have a lot of willpower, so I would stop for six months to prove to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic. And so I would be successful in that. So I'd go, okay, so I mustn't be an alcoholic because I can stop for six months. And then I would start again and I uh, would be okay for a little while and then I would, then I would find myself, you know, in, in, very, uh, in very bad shape again, you know. So, um, so I realized that it wasn't about w using my will. It was about, you know, giving up my will and surrendering to the fact that um, I wasn't going to beat this addiction, that I had to actually accept the fact that I was addicted to alcohol. And that was the first step in, uh, in, in, uh, in the success of, of stopping. So what does this track remind you of then? Okay, I can hear you laughing already. That's funny. Well, when we first arrived in Melbourne, the first week we lived in a flat in Mentone and uh, I came home and the radio was going playing that song. And my mother had nearly burned the flat down. The firemen were there and she'd burned the kitchen. And uh, somehow a fire had started in the flat. And it just seemed very um, very ironic that um, I walked into the house. I walked into the flat and it was completely black. And uh, on the radio that song was playing. Nothing <laughs> will be untrue. You know that I would be a liar if I was to say. Let's, um, let's go through the list of our... We always ask people for some quirky songs, songs that, that are a bit left field, songs like this one. Public-spirited boy Became a public-spirited man So he worked very hard and he read everything Until he came up with a plan There'd be no exploitation Of the work of boys, kid No discrimination Cause the colour of your skin that's the genius of Randy Newman there. Uh, why does this make the cut? He's up there with Johnny. He's the greatest as well. He's a master. He's a master musician, master composer, master arranger, master lyricist. There's nothing that he can't do. He's awesome. Do you get to meet these people? Have you ever met Randy Newman? I actually met Randy Newman at a, a children's um, charity for a school. And uh, he was playing there and I was playing there. So I just met him very briefly and he was, he was a sweetheart. It's so lovely. And what was Ringo Starr like? Weren't you both singing each other's hits on stage? Yes, we do. We sing everybody's, everybody sings everybody's song. It's, that's one of the great experiences of, of playing other people's songs, uh, obviously. Graham Goldman songs or Santana songs or Toro songs or Ringo songs. Everyone's playing everyone's songs. And so you turn around playing um, Overkill or something and... And everyone loves playing the songs and you're playing them with somebody who played in Santana, someone who played in Toto, someone who played in 10cc and of course Ringo who played in the Beatles. There's nothing, not a feeling that's really much better than that. It's, it's incredible. I can get you sleep I think about the implications Of diving into deep And possibly the complications Especially at night Situations. I know we'll be all right. Perhaps it's just an imagination. Day after day, 
are so many new generations of people tuning into that music. You must have a, a real cross-generational audience. These yeah, days. the audience is the audience is fantastic. For his shows, it's from about from six years old to eighty years old. You know, a real real cross section of, of audience. Colin Hayes here, and uh, we're talking about uh, some of the quirky songs that, that are on his playlist. Uh, songs like this one as well. Love is the sweetest thing What else on earth could ever bring Such happiness to everything As love goes That's Ray Noble and his orchestra and Al Bowley. <laughs> Where did that come from? Well, um, before we had the shop, we used to have a little house in Scotland and we had a beautiful big radio gramophone. And there was always seemed to be that kind of music coming out of the gramophone. But my mother was doing the housework and I was always wandering around, you know, saying to her, what can I do? You know, what can I do? And she would just say, oh, listen to this nice song on the radio, son. Have an apple. (laughs) (laughs) This is a tale that never will tire. Wouldn't have picked that they would have been musical influences of yours, but it's obviously something that sort of, you know, comes in, reminds you of those moments in your childhood. I love Al Bowley, he's great. How about this one? My father always promised me that we would live. It's it's so it's so beautiful. It's painful. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's almost painful. That's so incredible. That that sound, that song, and her delivery and everything about it. I live in Paris now. My children. There's a whole lot of... I was expecting, to be really honest with you on this list, to have some Cuban and South American influence, either courtesy of your wife or <laughs> the boys that you play with, the band of immigrants, as you call them. But but it's not here. Why is there no South American music in this sort of list? Well, I'm probably not as familiar with that kind of music as music that I've that you've just played, you know. I thought about that and I thought about, you know, looking at, some music that I had, you know, that I got in my library, if you like, or music that I listened to. But um, to be honest, it wasn't as strong an influence on me growing up than than the music that I was familiar with. You know, it's it, that's really really more a recent discovery. 
listening to music that Cecilia listens to. Yeah. How much of a sounding board is, is Cecilia, your wife, for you these days musically? She's a great producer. She has great ears and she has great instinct. So I always listen to what she says about what, what I'm working on and vice versa. She's working on something. That's the great thing about having a studio downstairs and just having a bunch of musicians that we that are our friends, you know. We just all work on each other's projects and it's a pretty joyous thing these days. It's great. I love it. Now, Men at Work are performing in Europe again soon? Well, it's really... it's. The brand is is called Men at Work. It's basically my band, but um, I'm touring there under the under the banner of Men at Work, which will be a a completely different set list. But it'll be it'll be just all Men at Work songs, and uh, as opposed to any of the songs from the solo records. Well, there might be a couple of songs solo records, but be ninety five, ninety seven percent Men at Work songs. Why have you decided to do that? It's an experiment, really. When I was playing with Ringo in Europe this year, I haven't toured in Europe with a band for 30-odd years. So I just was kind of amazed by the response that that the old songs had, not only my old songs, but everyone's old songs. And Steve tours with Toto in Europe, and uh, every place we played, the response to the, the three songs that I played was extraordinary, and I just was talking to... A couple of the people that in in Ringo's camp that look after organise his tours and stuff, and I said, "Do you think there's a tour of Europe that, for me to do?" And they said, "Well, you know, if you called it Men at Work, it would work, you know." And I just started thinking about it, and I thought, "Well, I never actually left Men at Work, so I'm gonna have a, I'll just have a crack at it and see what happens." I know you, you've you've lost Greg Ham, and uh, and in, back in 2012, will, will you miss him on stage? I miss Greg now. I miss Greg every day, actually. Yeah, Greg and I toured for six or seven years in the late 90s and into the 2000s. So, yeah, Gregory, um, that wasn't in the script that I had. I I always imagined that I would grow old with Greg. So, yeah, He's (laughs) he's very present in his absence, Gregory. So if this tour works in Europe for Men at Work, is there a chance there'll be an Australian tour? I'm not sure. Um, you know, it's it's a funny thing. I just want to take it one step at a time and see what happens with this one and see how it feels before I think about anything else. Because it's, it's an emotional thing, really, more than anything. It's, it's something about reclamation, you know. It's not... I. I, I wandered around for the last 35 years, not particularly walking away from my past or men at work, but it was just something that was, I didn't really think that much about it. I just thought, oh, well, I'm on my own and off I go, you know. I guess maybe just things, sometimes things uh, come around again and you think, well, I'll look at that. And uh, it's a period of my life which was, you know, very important. It's almost like it's a specific slice of your life, you know, so it's not... It's almost like, I wouldn't say playing a character, but it's it's a part of who you are, that, you know, that, that identity that, that I was when I was playing with men at work. It, it feels like it was me, but it was just a specific, you know, a specific part of my life, which was incredibly, you know, powerful, you know. So, I don't know, I'm just going to see, we're going to see how the, how the whole thing happens and, and see how it pans out before I 
start making any more grand plans. Well, we'll watch that space. And in the meantime, I know that we can see you and the Cubans at Blues Fest in April in 2019. <laughs> I played the Blues Fest a number of years ago and it was fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to going there with this band. It's going to be great. Colin Hay, thank you so much for being our music teacher tonight. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.